You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Today, we're going to continue looking at the genealogy of Jesus in in Matthew 1, but uh, I was thinking about the anticipation as we talk about Jesus as the son of David today from Matthew 1, 7 through 11, it took me back to um, anticipating a wedding uh, in the spring of 2011. Um, <clears throat> it was a wedding uh, that the news went out uh, to everyone um, uh, of any great stature and importance to come to Wake Forest on March 5th, 2011. Uh, I'm just kidding. That's my wedding. Um, there was another wedding in the spring of 2011, um, and that was a royal wedding, uh, a royal wedding of uh, Prince William and Kate. Um, <clears throat> I remember this uh, in the little duplex uh, that we lived in as a, a newlywed couple. I think their wedding was in April. Uh, our wedding was in March. And I, I'm pretty sure that Emily got up at like 5 a.m. Uh, to, to watch the beginning of the proceedings. And uh, I, on part of me was like, what's so important about their wedding? I mean, our wedding was pretty significant. But then I watched their wedding, and I was like, oh, their wedding's a whole nother level, right? Like, <clears throat> this is like a once-in-a-generation passing, um, you know, uh, the beginning of the passing of the baton uh, in the royal family. And all the pomp and circumstance, all the royalty and dignity and dignitaries from all kinds of countries that were present, all the commentary. Uh, And I mean, I think from the day before until well after the wedding, like, I mean, who gets play-by-play commentary of your horse-drawn exit, you know, from the, from the church, you know, except the royal family. Um, There's this sense of anticipation that marked this wedding because of its significance of William being in line for the kingdom and, and all that, that came with it. It was a a significant moment uh, that I remember uh, myself early uh, in, uh, in our marriage uh, besides the fact that, you know, we beat them, um, you know, why we were so caught up in uh, their uh, leader's wedding, is a, that's a different conversation. But um, nonetheless, it was, it was significant. And, and in many ways, uh, Christmas brings us to looking at royalty. Uh, in the beginning, it reminds us not of a royal wedding, but of a royal birth in Jesus' first coming. But at Christmas, we also are awaiting our own royal wedding. And, and today, as we look at <clears throat> Jesus as the son of David, I couldn't help but think about what awaits us. In Revelation 19, <clears throat> we see <clears throat> this promised uh, wedding that's to take place, the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation 19, verse 6, it says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. It's kingdom language that marks this wedding. It says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. That's the church. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. 
See, the genealogy of Jesus uh, is the first hint that unlike Prince and Prince William and uh, <clears throat> Princess Kate's wedding, um, the, the invitations only went out to a select few to that wedding. I guess unless you are a cable uh, network provider, then you got an invitation technically. But uh, that's beside the point. <clears throat> Those invitations went out to a select few. And Jesus' birth, he signals to us that the invitation is going out to everyone to come and celebrate not only his birth, but to take part in the royal wedding that awaits us. We saw in, uh, in, in the genealogy of Jesus last week in Matthew 1 that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's history. We see how it goes from Abraham through David through the exile to come to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's history, which means the covenant blessings of God, the covenant promises he made to Abraham, and as today we're going to see the covenant promises that he made to David. Um, and next week, as we'll see, the covenant promises of the new covenant are now fulfilled in him, and they come to us through this promised Davidic king for all who would believe in him. These covenant blessings are ours through Jesus, who's the fulfillment of Israel's history. And so knowing God and enjoying the benefits of being united to him are available to all who would trust in him, to all who would believe in him. And so in this genealogy, we see the significance of this as, as Matthew helps uh, to unpack for us uh, the, the, the legal lineage, if you will, of, of Jesus uh, from Abraham to David through uh, the exile, through ultimately uh, Joseph, uh, who is his earthly father, um, but uh, of a special birth as Jesus is born uh, of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit. He comes uh, through the legal line of David to be the promised Davidic king, to extend the promises uh, of blessing that God made to Abraham now to all people. And so Jesus' genealogy is, is, yes, packed with history because it tells us uh, where Jesus came from uh, in terms of how God worked out all these things from the beginning. But ultimately, it's filled with rich truth for us to believe, um, because in his history, it tells us who he is. Um, and so uh, last week we looked at Abraham, uh, and we saw in Matthew 1, 2 through 6, that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the promised one to bring God's blessing to all nations. Today, we're going to see that Jesus is the son of David, the promised one who establishes God's kingdom. And the next week, we'll see that Jesus is the promised one to lead his people out of exile. <clears throat> So today we come to, uh, to, to verses 7 through 11 that tell us that Jesus is the son of David. Picking up in verse 6, it says that Jesse, <clears throat> who is the father uh, of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. <clears throat> 
So in this genealogy, uh, it goes from Abraham through David into the exile and ultimately to Jesus. But it's interesting the significance in which uh, David is, is given in terms of the genealogy. Before it starts with Abraham, verse 1 gives us the summary. But when you look at verse 1, do you notice the order? It starts not like it does throughout the rest of the passage, Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. It inverts it, and it says, Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we see, as it introduces David, there are many kings that are mentioned in this genealogy, but only one of them is called the king, right? Um, There are many teams who competed in the Big Ten this year, but there's only one the Big Ten champion, right? Uh, amen? Um, <clears throat> and so <clears throat> uh, we, we see the, the significance of him being highlighted as the king, and particularly the king with whom God has made covenant promises. And, and then it goes on, and, uh, and we see how um, <clears throat> uh, the, the whole system is built around these 14 generations. And, and genealogies, uh, there typically was a little bit of wiggle room as in saying, that I am a son, I, you know, I don't know my genealogy all that well, but I know my grandfather on my dad's side of the family is named Samuel. It's, you could say that I am the son of Samuel if you skip over Lewis, uh, who's my dad. Uh, in a way, I am still the son of, of Samuel Geyer. Um, there's, at times, you have a generation or so that's skipped over, and it actually indicates that Matthew isn't playing kind of loose with the history here as much as he's trying to make a point within the bounds of giving a genealogy that some people are skipped over in this process to highlight the 14 generations, which some commentators point out there's this kind of thing within uh, Hebrew literature and other ancient literature where uh, some people get like really carried away with like numberology and like what numbers mean. But there is uh, kind of a, a practice in which uh, the, the letters of a name can be add, added up to uh, equal a certain number. And David's name in Hebrew is three letters. Uh, the vowels aren't uh, written out in Hebrew. They're just kind of made by dots related to the consonants. And his three letters... Uh, um, have been uh, add up to 14. Um, and, and you have this sense of completion that comes with 7 times 2, that's 14, that the 14 generations are being highlighted, um, that all of that centers around David as this promised king. And, and when you look at the Gospels, Matthew highlights Jesus as the son of David nearly twice as much as any other gospel. It's of particular importance that Matthew is pointing out, who's most likely writing primarily with a Jewish audience in mind, uh, with Old Testament knowledge in mind, to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Just as his gospel begins, it begins with saying, Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. So what does that mean? What, what I've been trying to do is looking at the genealogy and looking at these key Uh, kind of markers of the genealogy, Abraham, David, exile, and stepping back to say, why is that significant? What does it mean for our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish? And here today we see that Jesus is the son of David. And the first thing I want us to see is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 16. I want us to see that God promises to establish his kingdom through David's offspring. God promises to establish his kingdom through David's offspring. If you look there in 2 Samuel uh, 7, 
Samuel King's Chronicles. It's like reverse uh, uh, alphabetic orders. I always remember uh, those. They <coughs> kind of get jammed up there when you're trying to find uh, a reference. <coughs> but 2 Samuel 7, we see <coughs> David has... Uh, uh, established himself uh, as king following Saul, uh, following Saul um, and God is at work through him and blessing him. <clears throat> and David desires in his success to build a house for God. <clears throat> and God says to David, you won't build a house for me, I'm going to build a house for you. And particularly, he unpacks it this way um, <clears throat> with a word from the Lord that comes through Nathan. Um, and, and he says, starting up in verse 5, Go and tell my servant David, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place in a tent for my dwelling. He goes on to say, basically, um, I'm going to build a house for you. And he says this, starting in verse 11. <clears throat> From the time I appointed judges over my people Israel, he says, now he's, he's brought David to be king, and he says, I will give Israel rest from their enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. In this covenant, David promises, God promises David a few things. He promises to make David's name great. He promises to provide for his people Israel a place where God would plant them. He's going to, uh, to make them secure, give them rest from their enemies, it says, is the third thing. And then he says he's going to establish David's dynasty. He's going to establish a kingdom through David and his offspring that will last forever. And then he's going to enable David's son to build God's permanent house for him. David wanted to build a house, but it was Solomon who would ultimately build the temple for God. In all of this, we see that there's some intentional uh, using of language that would remind us of God's promise to Abraham. I decided I'm going to wait till next week to unpack this. I'm going to kind of give you the pieces before the big picture. But, but in a way, you see how God's covenant promises begin to come together. God, God makes a promise with Abraham to establish a people for himself, one people to bring blessing to all peoples. And that promise gets carried on through the line of Abraham as we see throughout Genesis. And it's ultimately through Judah uh, that that line is going to be continued. And that's going to come to David. And it's going to be in David that the promised blessing of Israel, it, it almost is like this narrowing of how this is going to take place. The Abrahamic promises are tied together and wed together with the, Abra uh, with the Davidic promises that we have the language of God's covenant promises with Abraham to make David's name great, to bless David and his family. And he's going to establish a kingdom that will stretch out over the whole world and will last forever. But there's also something interesting in this promise to David because there's both a near and a far term fulfillment. When you read this and you think about it being Jesus, you probably should scratch your head when it's like, and when your son commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. Wait a second. That can't be Jesus. 
Um, and, and in fact, it's not. And it's clearly uh, in both in terms of 2 Samuel as well as even, even in the genealogy. Obviously, David's son that comes after him, who God extends the line uh, and the dynasty of David, the kingdom of David, is through Solomon. And so we have this near-term fulfillment, fulfillment that Solomon is going to be king, and Solomon will indeed sin, and God will indeed discipline him. But Solomon is going to be used by God to establish his house. It's Solomon who will build the temple, which is the, uh, the, the more permanent uh, dwelling place of God from the, the tabernacle in which God demonstrated his presence as he brought Israel out of Egypt. And so it becomes clear in 2 Samuel 7 that obviously Solomon is intended um, in terms of how God is going to extend his promise. And yet, nearly every Old Testament author, as well as Jewish rabbis, and, and ultimately we see this in the New Testament, that there has to be some further out promise because the kingdom of David is to last forever. And God tells David that he's going to die. He says, you're going to die, but I'm going to continue your line. And I'm not going to continue it for some time. I'm going to continue it for all time. Now, we know from his promise to Abraham that God knows how to tell time because he tells Israel, you're going to be in, you're going to be in Egypt for four, uh, 400 years and I'm going to bring you out. And God knows, knows exactly what he's saying here. He's saying, I'm going to establish a kingdom forever. And so it's clear that there's a future fulfillment that will come about through the line of David. And the question is, how is that going to happen? And it's amazing. I, I can't unpack all of these references, but it's amazing how much you see this promise to David get wrapped up in this anointed one or this Messiah that's to come. And, and this, this talk of a king who is coming. Look at Psalm 72 uh, just to, to unpack this <clears throat> a little further. Psalm 72 <clears throat> It's a psalm of Solomon, but listen to the way it speaks. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. It says, may the fear of you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. Skip down uh, to, uh, to verse 11, may all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. He delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious in, uh, is their blood in his sight. And verse 18, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. The, the reigning of the king, the Davidic king and the extending of God's glory in all the world are wed together. And we see how in Jeremiah 33, this, this sense of a promised king who's to come. Listen to what Jeremiah says of, uh, of the Davidic king. In Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 26, I can't read uh, all of this, but it speaks of the Lord's eternal covenant uh, with David. In verse 15, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. 
He's a son of David, but he's so much more than a son of David. And Psalm 110, a significant verse that's going to come up later in both the Gospels as well as the book of Acts, David speaks in, in this way that uh, implies this almost divine son that's to come. It says, The Lord, a Psalm of David, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And it speaks of how this king is going to come and he's going to be also a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek in verse 14. And the Lord says, the Lord is at your, righteous, at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide uh, earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. There's this Lord that David is talking about who's going to sit with the nations under his feet at, as his footstool. In Isaiah chapter 9, we see this promise of a, of a king who's going to come, but who's going to be born as a child. <clears throat> Listen to Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verses 1 through 2. It's your Bible drill for the day. You guys ready for this? <clears throat> but there will be no more gloom for, who, for, who, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, speaking of their exile. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. And how did that light shine? Verse 6 tells us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now track with me. The son of David is also connected to the Son of Man, who is known as the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. Flip with me to Daniel 7. Listen, you're getting way more than you bargained for today, all right? Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. The one who's coming to reign and establish his kingdom in Daniel's vision as he talks about the end times. Uh, if you want to hear a convoluted sermon about what this vision means, you can go back and listen to a sermon series we did uh, on this. Um, <clears throat> I do believe uh, that uh, in Daniel's vision is, is the only viable argument that we have for the existence of unicorns uh, because there is a ram with one horn uh, in it. And, uh, and so my daughter was delighted when I found that biblical discovery. Uh, as She argues very vehemently that they are real. Um, <clears throat> but nonetheless, that's a side note. Um, seven, chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. This kingdom that Daniel's talking about that's going to be established is going to be established by a son of man. And it says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
In my calculation, the, the sense of everlasting kingdoms being promised, we have this sense in which this promised Davidic king and kingdom and this one from the Son of Man, this divine one who's coming, who's going to establish his kingdom, these two things are coming together. And we see that this, this anointed one that's promised throughout the Old Testament is the one that, that's com- coming from the line of David that will establish God's kingdom. One, one last passage, Amos chapter 9, right after Hosea, which begins the Minor Prophets, and Joel, <clears throat> Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. In that day... I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise it up and raise up its ruin and rebuild it as of the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Eden and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sowed seeds and the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people, and they shall rebuild ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall again, and never again be uprooted out of that land that I have given them, says the Lord. God's restoration that he's going to do on the other side of exile is going to come from the booth of David, from the, uh, the offspring of David. God is going to raise up one who's going to come and restore his people. God establishes his kingdom through David's offspring. And yes, that kingdom, as we're going to see in the genealogy, has continued through Solomon and the kings that follow. But all along, there is this waiting and anticipation of a future king whose kingdom will have no end. For there to be a kingdom that lasts forever, there has to be a king always in succession on that throne. Or there has to be a king who lives forever. And we're going to see that the king who lives forever first died and then rose and is coming again. Because not only does God establish his kingdom through David's offspring, but ultimately Jesus is the promised king of David who establishes God's kingdom. Um, You can see this in a few different ways. We see it in his birth. In Matthew 1, Jesus makes, goes to great lengths to, to demonstrate how Jesus comes through the line of David. He comes from David the king. And we'll come back to the significance of why Bathsheba isn't mentioned by name and ultimately their child that he has by virtue both of, uh, in essence, sexual abuse as well as adultery, uh, dies in birth or before birth. And then Solomon comes through Bathsheba ultimately after a family, uh, basically a family turmoil uh, in which one of David's other sons raises up to try to take his place over David and Solomon ultimately is established uh, as king and then from him, Rehoboam, uh, there's back story and baggage there and he continues to go on through the king. Some of them we know, some of them we don't. Probably the only one that has any good track record is Hezekiah and probably the worst king of all there is Manasseh. Uh, who, who does what's evil in the sight of the Lord. And many of these kings do ultimately what's evil in the sight of the Lord. But through this offspring, God has established, through the line of David, God's established this Davidic kingdom. But this Davidic kingdom is more than just about David. It's ultimately about God. And when we take the Old Testament promises 
uh, about the Messiah that I read those Old Testament passages from, you kind of get this summary. We, we, we went through the book Drama of Scripture in our equip class. We're going to be doing that class again in the, um, what's this next thing that's coming up? The spring. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and, and in that, we walk through uh, God's promises that he made uh, to, uh, to, to Abraham and to the Mosaic Covenant and David and the New Covenant. Um, <clears throat> and we, we looked at this book, Drama of Scripture, and this summary in there I found helpful. It says, the Messiah will reign forever will reign with righteousness and justice, will rule over all the people of the earth, will establish peace over all creation, be endowed with the Spirit of God, be the embodiment of Yahweh, the covenant name of God, destroy the wicked by his command, act as both king and priest, mediate a new covenant, forgive sins through his death, and lead God's people on a new exodus. We see all of this unfold throughout Jesus' life. We see that Jesus is the promised king in his birth who comes from the line of David, We see it in his teaching. I mentioned Psalm 110 earlier, how it said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put all enemies under your feet. David said that, and there's this question of what did David mean? Who is the Lord that he was talking to? And can he refer to his son as Lord? What exactly is meant there? Well, look at Matthew 22 with me real quick. When Jesus is pressed by the religious leaders of the day to demonstrate that he is the Messiah... I want you to notice what he does in verse 41 of Matthew 22. It says, The Pharisees were gathered together, and they said, What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? Jesus asked them, excuse me, and and they responded, The son of David. So Jesus is setting them up. And Jesus says in response to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, led by the Spirit, calls him Lord? saying, and now he quotes from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus was not denying that he was, that the Messiah was coming from the line of David. What he was saying is that the Messiah is not only the son of David, he's more than the son of David. And when they heard his answer, they knew that they couldn't say anything against him. And when Peter stood up in Acts chapter 2, verses 34 through 36, after the resurrection to declare the gospel to a group of of largely people from Jerusalem as well as Israelites from the nations that were gathered for Passover in Jerusalem, when he wanted to communicate that Jesus wasn't just any Messiah-like figure, but he was indeed the divine promised Messiah, It says in in Acts chapter 2 in his sermon, This Jesus, verse 23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Um, And he's quoting from Psalm 16 here. My heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, and my flesh will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make full, uh, me full of gladness with, um, in your presence. <clears throat> and he goes on to say, he says, Brothers, I must say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. 
These promises to David point to something more than David. Being there for a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, 2 Samuel 7, that, not, that one of his descendants would sit on his, front, uh, on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he would not be abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised him up, and we all saw it. We're all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, the Holy Spirit, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make enemies of your footstools. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, Messiah, anointed one, promised one, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see, it's all showing us that Jesus is the promised son of David. You see it in his birth. We see it in his teaching. I wish I could unpack for you from Mark 4 and Matthew 13 and Jesus' parables. He shows us the kingdom comes not all at once. It comes small and then it grows big. It comes now through the sowing of seed, but in the end there will be a reaping and a, a gathering. It shows us that in the present, the kingdom doesn't come with irresistible power, but the sower sows the seed of the gospel of the kingdom, and some people reject it. It reminds us that we live in an already not yet kingdom. Jesus has come and established his kingdom, but not everybody responds to it. Not everybody receives the word of the king and submits themselves to him. Some harden their hearts to him. But there is a final judgment of the kingdom that's reserved in the future, and this is where the sheep are distinguished from the goats and the master comes back and those whom he entrusted with money to be used, he holds to account how they've used them. And then ultimately the kingdom of God we see is postponed in a sense to allow many more to enter here in the present age, he shows us, that we await the, the full consummation of the kingdom so that we can invite people to enter into the kingdom. Jesus in his, in his birth and in his teaching shows us that he's the promised king from the line of David who's going to establish his kingdom. And it's a kingdom that's already and that it's not yet. And it explains so much about the, uh, the struggle in this life that we have this newness of life and God reigning in our hearts, changing and transforming us, but we live in a world that doesn't recognize his kingship. Oh, he's sovereign over all. God makes that clear throughout the scriptures. But he reigns in the hearts of those who believe in him now. And one day he's going to come again in judgment and he will reign over all, both in salvation to those who believe and in judgment to those who reject him as king. And then ultimately we see in his death and resurrection that Jesus is, is established and given the title uh, this divine title, Son of David. It's not that he didn't exist as the Son uh, of God beforehand, but Romans 1 unpacks it like this, that it's particularly through the resurrection that Jesus is shown to be the Son of God. <clears throat> it says, as Paul talks about the gospel, um, when he talks about the gospel, notice what he does. He says, this gospel, verse 1, going into verse 2, was promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son who was descended from David. Paul does this as well in 2 Timothy 1.8. He says, remember my gospel. Remember Jesus, who was descended from the son of David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, 
our Lord. Through his death and resurrection, we see that Jesus is demonstrated to be king and his kingdom is established. But we also see that Jesus is a different kind of king. And we see this especially in his, in his genealogy. If you look back at Matthew 1, though he is the royal divine king, he enters the world through humble means. <clears throat> Honestly, the royal line was royally messed up. If you think about uh, what we see, we saw this with both Abraham, we saw this in Abraham's case, but we also see it here in David's case. <clears throat> that he comes to David the king, who no doubt had a heart for God and chased after God, and yet David would ultimately harden his heart against God and take multiple wives, uh, and, uh, and his heart would be drawn away. Rather than doing the work of a king, he takes advantage of a woman who, in essence, was married to, to what, would, what would be the equivalent of a, of a best friend of sorts to David who was one of his mighty men, Uriah the Hittite. And having, having betrayed his friend and um, <clears throat> abused Bathsheba, he then puts his friend at the front line so he could be killed. Listen, the Bible is unsettling when you see the, sometimes what takes place. Not because it tries to sugarcoat it and make it clear, but in, in a way it demonstrates to us the very real people with whom God works the very real ways in which God changes and draws us out of sin and brings us to repentance as well as when we persist in our sin, brings us to judgment. And how through the sorrow of all that took place with Bathsheba would come Solomon. And I, I mentioned through, um, through Rehoboam who rebels against his father Solomon and we see the, the kingdom divided after Solomon what comes to its glory under David and Solomon and then divided into chaos through the sons of Solomon. How you could write a book on, on wisdom and then fail to teach it to your children. What a word for all of us parents to say we know so much about the wisdom and the fear of the Lord and then fail to pass it on and, and ultimately knowing that, that God's, our children's hearts are only in God's hands and yet we see how, how all of this wisdom is given to David and particularly to Solomon, yet it's squandered. We see the humility of Jesus coming as king and yet being born into a family mired by sin. Filled with sinners. He was the, the king of the world and yet he came into the world in the lowest possible way. The son of David. From the line of David. But was born in a manner fitting for the servant of David. In a stable with the animals. And in his ministry, Jesus is characterized just like it was said of the king in the Old Testament who was coming to, to be with the, to help the poor and the lame and the blind and even raise the dead. In Mark 10.45, it says he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus was the king who was going to reign, but he was going to reign as the humble king who would lay down his life for us. And this all comes together. We see his, his birth, this uh, royal king born in humility, his ministry characterized by helping the least of these and demonstrating the upside-down nature of the kingdom that the problem with a lot of us is that we think we're something. When God really says, in comparison to me, you're really nothing. And that your worth isn't 
compromised by that, but your worth is maximized by that because though we are nothing in His eyes, He came and gave everything for us. And in His death and resurrection, Paul will unpack it this way in Philippians chapter 2 as he talks about the call for us as believers to treat one another with humility, to consider the interest of others more significant than our own. He points ultimately to Jesus in verse 5. He says, Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Jesus is the only one who can give us everything that we lack without giving up anything in himself, I heard Jackie Hill Perry say. What a beautiful message of the incarnation, that Jesus lays aside only his status, doesn't empty himself of his divine nature. Instead, he takes on our nature, takes on human flesh, and and comes and lives among us. And being found, verse 8, in human form, he humbled himself. How did he humble himself? By becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus is a different kind of king. When Jesus stood up, his common message to the people was turn from yourself, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It was a demand of total allegiance to King Jesus. But, But here's the thing about King Jesus. He demands total allegiance. And he doesn't just lead from the throne. But he leads by humbling himself and coming off the throne and taking on the form of a servant and laying down his life for us. You see, it's in his laying down his life for us that it compels us to give us our total allegiance. The one who had all right and all authority to demand our obedience died in our place and for our sin. The one who was perfectly righteous became unrighteous, uh, taking on our sin, not in his action, but taking on our sin in judgment. He himself who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus is a different kind of king, a king who demands our total allegiance and then lays down his life so that we might give it to him. And the response to all of this that I want us to end today with is to take refuge in Jesus and submit to him. To take refuge in him and submit to him. Look at Psalm 2. It stands at the beginning of the the book of Psalms as somewhat of an introduction that shows us that as we talk about the king throughout the Psalms, it's more than the king uh, that comes, uh, that's that's from uh, immediately following David, but it's pointing forward. In Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12, it says, after talking about the nations raging, how the Lord has established his anointed, this promised one, this Messiah who will reign from Zion, his holy hill, He says this, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Kiss the Son. Take refuge in Him. Submit to him is what David says of this coming king, of this anointed one. 
the one whom we kiss and we bow ourselves in total allegiance and find our refuge in is none other than Jesus. And all week as I've been thinking about the coming of the king and how as he comes and establishes his kingdom, that means that everybody is called to respond to the king, right? Like if if you're a king and nobody's following you, there's this quote that says, if you think you're a leader but nobody's following you, then you're just taking a walk. If, If you're a king but you got no subjects, what's your kingdom? Jesus comes as king and he requires all of his subjects, all who are in his kingdom, to to find refuge in him and submit to him. And I've been thinking about what Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 28, verses 28 through 30, when Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, Come and find rest in me. Kiss the Son. Take refuge in him. And then he says this, and here's this thing. If Jesus is our king, it means that we must give him our total allegiance, including our submission. Take my yoke upon you, he says, and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The reference to the yoke is what they would put on an oxen that would guide them as they did their work. Jesus is saying, when you come to me and find refuge in me from all of your weariness, all of your striving, all of your ceasing, you'll find rest in the way in which I will call you to go, the yoke on which I will put you, the obedience of which I will call from you. Following Jesus, remember, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. The obedience that he calls for, the submission and allegiance he calls for, he says, will be easy and that his burden will be light. 1 John picks up on this and it says, All who love God keep his commands. If you take refuge in the king, you keep the king's commands. But for those who love God, his, his, his commands are not a burden, 1 John says. And I can't help but think as we celebrate the king, it reminds us that the king calls us to give our total allegiance to him this Christmas. But here's the gospel message. It's the rest that comes from receiving grace from our king that makes obedience to our King light. It's it's the grace that we receive from Him that gives us rest, that in turn enables us to to walk in obedience to Him. You see, the, the message of Christianity is not obey and then be saved. It's be saved so that you can obey. It's not uh, perform so that you'll be accepted by the King. It's you're accepted by the King, so walk in obedience to Him. We get that mixed up sometimes, both in keeping us from coming to Christ, thinking we need to clean ourselves up, as well as sometimes in the Christian life just being uh, overcome with a low-grade sense of guilt all the time, comparing uh, our performance, uh, basing our, our view, God's view of us on our performance before Him. And for Jesus to be the Son of David means that He reigns and rules forever. Starting in us, And the king who reigns in us calls us to walk in obedience to him. But the obedience he demands, he provides the very thing we need. Rest and refuge in the sun. That's the invitation at Christmas, is to come and find refuge in the one who's born a child and yet a king. 
who's come to rule and reign forever in our hearts and to bring us to his glorious throne. It's grace that brings us in to the kingdom. It's grace that brings us home. And it's grace that sustains us as we follow King Jesus and seek to submit to him and give him the allegiance that he's due. Let's pray.